For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. British horror films. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is a first. A first in the sense that um, it's a nationality I've not had on the podcast yet. So, welcome to the show, Spanish filmmaker Sergio Uguet de Rosario. Oh, de Rosario. De Rosario. <laughs> oh, yeah, perfect. Dear listener, I did practice that, and now I've made a fool of myself while recording. But I'm not going to hide that shame. I'm going to live it. So welcome to the show. You gotta own it. I am, yeah, that's it. I'm gonna own it. But apologies for my pathetic attempt in in the recording <laughs> arena. But welcome to the show, Sergio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. Now we bumped into each other uh, earlier this year at Cannes Film Festival. You're mm-hmm. f- are you from Madrid originally? Yes, I am. But you're, born and I'm, raised. But I'm not speaking to you, Madrid. Now, where are you at the moment? No, I'm based in Los Angeles. Hmm. I've been here for about a year and a half now. Okay. It's my second time. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, you're in Los Angeles because obviously that's the, that's the, the, the world's mecca for, for the filmmaker world. Um, mm-hmm. what, what are your current films that are hitting the market? Anything you want to tell the, the audience about? Well, I, well, I'd love to talk about Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway. Okay. Um, it's uh, the, the Fantasia Film Festival called it The Matrix on Acid. Oh, nice. It's... it's it's a piece of art, in my opinion, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is going through the festival circuit currently. Mm-hmm. We have about 25 uh, festivals scheduled to the end of the year. Right. And we're hoping to announce some distribution deals soon. Does that, does that, know. Does, does that include the UK? Yes. Oh. It will include the UK. Brilliant news. Yeah. We'll look, we'll look. I don't know if there will be a theatrical release in the UK. Um, uh, there, there'll definitely be a U.S. theatrical release, mm-hmm. like uh, limited. Yeah. And you know, at least there'll be uh, like DVDs and Blu-rays in the UK. Fantastic. Now that's always good news to know it's going to get released. Um, mm-hmm. Now we're going to do five repertoire films. So before we do, I'll just do the rules for anyone that's coming to this for the first time. It's fairly straightforward. Sergio has supplied me with a list of five. British horror films, British in his mind. I'm not a, I'm not dogmatic about this. There's, a, there's no purity rules to this, but British in some way, shape, or form, and we'll get to that as we go through the list. We're going to do them in reverse date order, so oldest to newest. Um, there are five minutes allowed for each film for us to talk about why Sergio 
thinks they're interesting movies and why he likes them. And then when um, when Edgar Broughton Band sings, that will be the end of the five minutes. So, are you clear on the rules, Sergio? I am. Good I man. Am. Well, look, I'm going to start the clock, and the first in your series of five British Great British Horror Films is Roman Polanski's Repulsion from 1965. Do you want to tell us why you find that so interesting? Yes. So, uh, in my definition of of horror, mm-hmm. right? Because there's many there's many instances of it. Um, I like it when you don't really understand where uh, the horror is coming from, ah, right? Okay, where it's yeah. it's it's up in the air. And if you see most of my list, they follow this trend. They um, do. <laughs> you know, where there's like, because for, for me, like once you see the monster, it's a lot of fun and everything, but it's like compared comparing pornography with eroticism, right? Yes. Um, it's much scarier when... It's something that could happen to you and might be in your mind, mm-hmm. you know. A great example of this is like, um, you know that movie, uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by yes. Julian Schnabel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. There's a sequence in that movie where the when the main character is having the stroke. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's like uh, that that sequence is like absolute horror. And this is not a horror movie. Mm. Right. So repulsion follows this, um, you know, is the London flat where, um, I, I forget what her name is, but, um, no, Carol, uh, sorry. Carol, who, Carol played by yes. Catherine Deneuve. Exactly. Carol, Carol, uh, you know, is having her, her, um, her attacks, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, w- uh, you know w- what's going on in this movie uh that's the reason why he picked this movie mm. it's Pol- is polanski also you know polanski in the beginning of his career who later go to make masterpieces like um rosemary's baby mm. you know which is actually like i prefer rosemary's baby but it's not a british film this one is mm. you know, this was this was this was um his first english language film um, exactly. Also, what's interesting about this film is that it, it was—it's used still to this day, as far as I understand, as an example of what mental illness looks like. Mm-hmm. Like the portrayal exactly. that Polanski manages to pull off through through the use of camera and visual effects, and Catherine exactly. Deneuve's performance is apparently psychologists have said it's as true to what they understand it to be as anything they've tried to describe in a book. Exactly. And if you take that and you move it over and you you blame it on an external factor, which you could argue a lot of demonic possessions and all that mm. uh, come from that, you know, then you have horror, you know, and that's what's brilliant about it is that, yes, it's mental illness, but it's a, it's a very thin line between that and like the exorcism. You know what I mean? Except in the exorcism, it goes all the way, mm. all the way. You know? Well, I mean, um, you, obviously, it, it, it kind of preempts, doesn't it? The idea that, I mean, now with all our understanding from a medical situation of whatever a possession is, mm-hmm. mental illness would be the go-to description now, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be, oh, they're seeing devils. They would go, that is 
this form of mental illness. Exactly. But, but it, sorry, go on. No, go on. No, and, and so and so you you wonder, yeah, but is it? <laughs> and that's that's the great question to to uh, answer, right? Is it really mental illness, or is there something larger at play here? Well, there's a you little know? bit. There's a little bit of dreamlike, isn't there? Because I remember rewatching it recently, and mm-hmm. that very strange three-piece band that appeared twice, playing mm-hmm. the spoons and stuff, that she sees yeah. twice by accident, obviously. But obviously, in terms of the film, on purpose. And you mm-hmm. go, is she in like some sort of urban hell, or is this real London? Exactly. Exactly. You know. So that's like you know. Sometimes it's good to have those. Open-ended questions. Mm. I I like it. I like it when when films don't explain everything, you know. And and in my like seeing differences between American films and British films, you know, American films they they give it all chewed up for you. There's no <laughs> there's no open ending, you know. It's all explained by the end usually. And in British films, not really, you know. There's like a lot of a lot of room to say like, well, what was that? I'll finish with that thought. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was almost like it was almost like you're open ended. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. It was like we'd rehearsed it, but honestly, listener, that was all part of the game. Only I can see the clock. Um, so. Uh, swiftly moving on, another eight years to 1973 to what is arguably uh, the, the the jewel in the crown of what is now considered to be the canon of British horror is Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. So from your point of view, where, where, where out of interest, when did you first come across Don't Look Now? Where did you see it first? Um, uh, I don't remember, to be quite honest. Mm. You know, but I, I think, well, I, I have a, a an app called Trello. Mm-hmm. And whenever people uh, talk to me about films, I just put them there if yeah. I haven't seen them. Yeah. A lot of times, a lot of times, you know, I'll go through the list and oh, I've seen this. You know, I just didn't remember the way they were explaining or whatever. And so, don't look now was on it, so somebody had told me about it, and then I went and I watched it and I thought like, well, this is amazing. And I'll tell you why, because probably like if it wasn't for don't don't look now, like the Blair Witch Project wouldn't exist, because it's. It's the same story structure. Is it? You know, well, if you think about it, cool. like, you know, there's, you're just going, you know, like what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, like, what is this? What is really going on? And then you have a payback at the end. You do. Yeah. That is an amazing comparison. <laughs> you know, and it's like the entire movie is like, uh, wait, what, what, you know? Till the end, and the in the end you have and it's a very similar uh, payback, you know, where there's the following, and then you go and there's the corner, and and you see. Uh, are we allowed to do spoilers? Yeah, this yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, I think Sorry, we can spoil yeah. nineteen seventy three masterpieces. You're all right. Exactly. You see that creepy looking creature, you know, whatever that is. Mm. <laughs> yeah, do you know? I never thought I, I would. I would never. That, you're, you're, that's the first as a comparison goes. But what what did you think? I mean, because obviously this is a film about belief, about cynicism, and ultimately mm-hmm. about grief. And it's amazing yeah. how those three things concoct a potion mm-hmm. that delivers horror. Yeah, and it's not and it's not 
it's not like your classic horror. Uh, I mean, not like your monster horror. It's mm. that type of classic uh, uh, horror that like slowly gets under your skin. Mm. Slowly, 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 you know, till you hit the payoff at the end. You know, the freakiest scene in the movie. And it's and it's interesting because because it, it, it's it's one of those films that I guess defies its genre tag because it's it's sort of as it's got older it's become more cemented as a horror film. But I don't think it would have necessarily been seen as an out and out horror film. You know, if you think of the context of like nineteen seventy nineteen seventy three, mm-hmm. you would have had you know peak peak Hammer horror output coming yeah. out of Britain, which was obviously very gothic and very lurid. Um, mm-hmm. You had the kind of, uh, I guess, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is going to come next year. Uh, um, Last House on the Left has already happened, which are very visceral movies. Whereas Don't Look Now is a beautiful film, isn't it? It's it, it, yeah. Nick Rogue cares about what you're watching. He isn't just bothered. He isn't trying to just unsettle you. He wants you to, uh, I guess, luxuriate in it. I guess is that is that the right way to see Don't Look Now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there's it's it's. It's beautifully shot, you know. It it, you see Venice like um, it, it it photographs it beautifully, and it's kind of like a love story, mm. if you will, you know. And it's it has that seventies love story kind of like a man and a woman type of feel to it, but it's it's not, mm. <laughs> you know. No, totally, and, and I think it's it, it's also it has it given given the the sort of way that the story sort of flows because it's never it's never hurried the start of the film is really a, a like a cult it just arrives you in the problem doesn't it before the closing mm-hmm. credits are finished we like we're dealing with the death of a child and what do mm-hmm. what do parents do with that guilt yeah exactly exactly um in in it even it even touches on the on like the um telepathy mm. i would call it yeah, between yeah. the father and the daughter you know the the knowing which which subtly tells you like look the character of of um donald sutherland you know has some type of psychic ability in a way you know how would you would define it and it's beautiful explains, and it's beautiful isn't it because he's the cynic and to make the cynic the one with the power exactly <laughs> exactly exactly it's amazing you know it's it's like it's like Great storytelling, mm. and and the dramatic irony of the fact that Julie Christie's character so wants to connect with a child, she's sort of almost busting a busting a, a gut to try and make that happen, and yet mm-hmm. the husband that doesn't want it has got it for free. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there we go. That's um, "Don't Look Now," nineteen seventy-three. Now we're going to stay in the seventies for your next selection, which the seventies is... was the great. Was it, a great, great decade. It was indeed. So, tell me about what what 1976's The Omen means to you. Where where do you remember first seeing this one? Uh, I don't remember. This I saw as a child. Okay. It's one of those. It's one of those movies that you see, like you know, The Omen and The Exorcist, are the go-to movies if you like horror as a kid. You know. And the, then you start I, getting. I, I, I always joke. I always joke that the the uh, the Omen is like the the. Um, the ca- the cash in on the Exorcist, but it but I think it stands tall and proud as its own brilliant horror film, doesn't it? 
I think so too. I mean, it's from from that opening sequence, you know, mm. that, Damien, this is for you. <laughs> kind of, kind of shit. That's like holy shit, you know, what just happened? Uh, you know, it, it's 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 also one of those movies that you know it it makes you doubt. Like, well, it's a child. Is is Damien really like sick or is he possessed or what's going on? How how is how does he have this effect on all these people? You know, and it goes again with a with a parents. The parents are a, a big part here, struggling to like, oh, but that's my baby. You know, how can my baby be the incarnation of the devil? And also not to be in on the deal. It's like to be just the vessel for raising uh-huh. the devil's child is such a neat contrivance, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Because you don't know. Uh, you know, uh, the kid looks. The kids look so so nice, but then he doesn't. There's always that that you know. It's kind of like well, we'll talk about the Shining later, but mm. it's kind of like the twins in the Shining. Mm-hmm. You know. They're, li- they're little girls, but they're so fucking creepy. I mean, so, obviously, like being from Spain, which is obviously a very Catholic country, and and and, and obviously everywhere you look, you know, there's 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 a, there's a sense of that culture that pervades. Whereas in Britain, you know, because of the way we our royal families over the years sort of banished Catholicism and invented Church of England and all that nonsense, mm-hmm. and then you've got a kind of what then becomes over time a more secular country that likes to think it's Christian rather than a devoutly Christian country, you know, culturally speaking. Um, what does what does it look like to to Spanish eyes? Do you think the omen? No, it, it's 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 very scary because, uh, you know, it it's the devil itself, hmm. and I think I think um, you know in, in Spain there's tradition of not really talking about any of this oh really like ghosts and all that is not like they'll they'll talk about a thing called el duende mm-hmm. el duende which is like the the um, the little ghoul you oh. know like oh they'll say like that house that house has duende okay you know that house has a the little ghoul but it's not it's spain is a very superstitious country mm-hmm. so you know, they'll not Unlike in unlike Britain, where you know they almost celebrate um, <laughs> the ghost stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Spain, in Spain, is something that you don't really talk about. You know, you live there, and it's 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 almost like laughed upon. In is, a sense, is this the idea of like God fearing and wanting to keep the devil in in the places it were, sort of culturally speaking? I would think yes. Yeah. Yes. You know. Is is, I mean, you you go and you you go back and um, you see like Goya's um, uh, black paintings, mm-hmm. you know, in his uh, series of Los Caprichos, yeah, and where he draws the devil itself. Um, this is when he was having mental issues in in Bordeaux, right? Um, and you know, it's his way of representing. Spain probably through through those things that you're not really allowed to talk about. Ah, okay. You know. And as as an op- as an opposite to that, the name Damien in Britain is synonymous mm-hmm. with the devil. Like it's they, they just walk hand in hand to the point that a fa- nationally famous sitcom called Only Fools and Horses, there's mm-hmm. a baby born called Damien, 
and the brother of the father is convinced that it's the son of the devil. And that's like a gag in a sitcom. But but is this, is this because of the movie? Yes, of or course. Is yeah. no, I, of the movie? I, think, of the movie? I think it's because Damien from The Omen is cemented in British culture. Yeah. Which, in, in, which, I, which is cool. Well, well, exactly. When you have a movie that has that much power over culture, that yeah. shape culture, mm. you know, it has to go in the top five. Indeed. Don't you think? Look at you. It's like you knew the five minutes were just coming up. <laughs> I... I... <laughs> I'm not counting. You know? <laughs> I'm sure you're not. It's like you're speaking in five-minute ellipses. You're going all the way around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, sir, we're going to jump forward to 1918. You've already suggested what it is. It's, it's Kubrick's uh, The Shining. Um, yes. Now, do you, for, for those that might not know, do you want to say why you would put this as a British horror film? Well, I mean, because it was the time when Kubrick was already living in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's a UK production. Yeah. And it's my, like, in my opinion, one of the best films, not even just horror, but one of the best films ever made. I would totally agree with you. You know, it's, it's, it's a complete masterpiece. And so even if it, even though it happens in the US, mm-hmm. like the story, it was shot in the UK though. But even though the, the story takes place in the U.S. and it's Stephen King's story, you know, who's a U.S. writer, it's still I don't I don't think I don't think this movie could have been done in the U.S. You know, it's shot in in Sheffield Studios, I think, mm-hmm. or in the U.K. It's when when Kubrick had left um, L.A. because he he felt that the people there were not supportive. And he'd rather live in in uh, close to London. And you know, John Harlan is brother-in-law and longtime producer produced it. So yeah, for no. me, it's a it's a, it's a UK film. Indeed, no. I I spoke to uh, Larry Smith on the podcast, mm-hmm. who was the gaffer, one of the gaffers on uh, The Shining, and ended up being the cinematographer on Eyes Wide Shut in the end. Um, uh-huh. And he he was. I mean, he basically he described it as if 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 Kubrick asks you to get involved in a film, you don't yeah. say yes right away because you know when you say yes, he's mm-hmm. got he's got you until the film's finished. And obviously, Kubrick making a film could be a long, long process. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he's not in a rush. He wasn't in a rush, you know. No, and it's it's sort of because because I was it, it was interesting to learn that this guy worked with him because. He also then ended up doing some cinematography work with Nicholas Wine and Refin, and mm-hmm. obviously there's been some comparisons with the Kubrick, how how Kubrick and the the some of the images that that um, Wine and Refin uses come on yeah. screen, and obviously that's a lot more to do probably with Larry Smith than it is to do with Wine and Refin wanting to be Kubrick. Yeah. Uh, the whole kind uh, yeah, of yeah. So what what for you makes this such a? Because I mean, obviously, famously Stephen King isn't the greatest fan of it and went so far as to make a two-part TV movie version to put the record which, straight. Yeah, which was a big mistake on his part, you know. Um, I think, I mean, like, there's always the debate of whose story is it. And, and Kubrick always took the story and made it his own. Mm. And I think that's what's brilliant of it. You know, like, uh, you have a lot of examples of that, like, Luis Buñuel did it with a lot of novels. He took mm-hmm. them and made them his own his own thing. And 
I think that's the that's an important part of the creative process. You know, if Stephen King wanted his story, he could have directed it himself, mm. and it would probably be in a piece of shit. You know, I think so. His um, his his is the closer he stays to the project, the less it becomes. The more it becomes just an extension of the book and the less it becomes a piece of cinema. And I think with, exactly. with, with The Shining, he's gone, I know what the essence of The Shining is. I'm going to make a movie with that essence. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and Stanley Kubrick just makes this beautiful film. Um, it's, it's, it takes your breath away when you see it. You know, and if you see it in a big screen, it's like, wow, well, it's, it's just beautiful to watch. But it has that element of of horror at the same time that slowly creeps on you like you know kind of like when you're turning a corner and you feel like oh somebody's gonna scare me mm. kind of feeling you know and at the same time it's just it's so open-ended everywhere that they even made that room 237 documentary yeah with all the all the conspiracy theories that this one movie has has created yeah, and they, and they were just like the be- the most interesting eight. I mean, there's a lot more, isn't there? <laughs> exactly. And if you, I mean, if you manage to make a film like that, that that's also shaped culture in such a way, because the the here's here's Johnny, mm. right, is is iconic. As are the twins, as are the the um, dolly shots in the. That was the first time that they used uh, Steadicam, mm. I think. Also, the in the dolly shots uh, with uh, Danny riding his tricycle. Yeah. You know, all that is is it's an ex- Go on, finish your thought. It's it's an essential part of of the filmmaking uh, um, work of body of work of the of the world in itself. Mm. No? no, it's it's it's. Well, I mean, it doesn't need me to say it because at that point, it, you know, Kubrick, you know, was 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 a you know time served film director at this point, so. There's there's a level of assurance in what he's put together to make a film. I mean, I remember I got hold of a shooting script about five mm-hmm. six years ago, and mm-hmm. it's full of you know lots of details about where the camera should and shouldn't be. But even yeah. as a even as a work of literature, you know, work of literature to read, mm-hmm. the screen it's like 180 pages, which as you and I both know is a is a stupidly yeah. long screenplay and shouldn't shouldn't ever go that far. But yeah. but it reads brilliantly. It's, it 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 reads like a beautiful thing as well. It's not like it's particularly technical and and somehow the images he's he's collaged together have ended up making this film. It's all there on the page as well as as on the screen. Mm-hmm. It's is you know it's the attention to detail. Indeed. I mean, I think it, we 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 were we were really lucky in. I think this is like obviously 1980, but in terms of horror films, generally speaking, you've got. You know, you've got Friedkin, you've got uh, De Palma, you've got Donna, you've got uh, Kubrick doing, you know, lending their eyes, eyes and minds to horror. And I think we were the the net benefit is in the horror fans' favour for that happening. Exactly. Now, I, so, I wish I wish there was a renaissance like that. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we can start it. We'll start it after this podcast. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Working on it, you know. Indeed, always, <laughs> always. Uh, so we're going to leap now, leap positively, leap decades. We're going to miss the eighties, going to miss the nineties, and land headfirst in two thousand and two. In probably what is out of your selections, actually, given where you said your intro was, this is probably your 
I guess, hardest genre of the five you've chosen. But in a way, Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where actually here's a film that was genuinely groundbreaking because rules of cinema, which had just been taken for granted and copied thereafter, were broken for the first time by Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. So now you must, I'm guessing you saw this one on the big screen first, yeah? Yes. So can you can you can you can you can you take us back to the memory of that of like seeing fast zombies for starters? Exactly. Well, I mean, that's that's partly the reason why I picked this movie is you come from the seventies and eighties with all these masterpieces, and then you dive into like the whole slasher era, mm-hmm. you know, with like the Friday the Thirteenth and the Freddy Krueger and all these and the the rules are set and then Danny Boyle comes in and breaks them entirely um and up to up to then we were used to like slow zombies mm. right oh yeah and, doubt. and sometimes zombie movies could be kind of like i mean they were fun but they could be boring in the sense of pacing um you know cuz the pacing was kind of like ooh, ooh. And then 28 Days Later comes and is like, oh, my God, what is this? You know, um, it's it's amazing. You know, it's it's completely refreshing to see somebody take the genre and spin it of it uh, and spin it, mm. you know, and create something that is is full of blood, of gore and color. And it's fast. And the pacing is is amazing. Um, and that's part of the reason why I picked it, you know, it is, it is cause it has the, it has zombies in it. I, 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 I enjoy zombie movies, you know, but mm. I, I picked it mostly because of those reasons. And, 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 and again, picking up on your point about what makes a sort of great film great is the, the iconic shots of London. Empty London. Empty London after you know the one man the one man left alive as it were um, is 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 certainly you know for horror fans is an image that's indelibly printed on your mind. Exactly, exactly. You know, and um, I think it's I think it's the first time uh, that you see this concept of a man in an empty city. Mm. Uh, uh, like they do it later with. I think it was later with that Will Smith movie. Um, oh, yeah, the um, the Richard Matheson adaptation. Um, I forgot the minute. Mine's gone blank. Uh, uh, Aminavar, Aminavar also did it with Vanilla Sky. But, but, but I mean, you've got to say, you as a producer, obviously, to go, it takes some lengths, doesn't it, to pull off shutting a city oh, yeah. down. Shutting London down... <laughs> Oh yeah. When you, you can know. you imagine that on your on the call? You know, you're looking through the schedule for the for the six or seven weeks, and you go, "We got to do what? We've got to what? <laughs> we're gonna, exactly. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna shut down. You know, oh, the, just everything around the Big Ben. <laughs> you know, just it's, that quiet, that quiet corner of London. <laughs> exactly. It's like, and even even if you went to like August on a Sunday morning and all this, which they probably did, mm. uh, you know, it's still. It's still like the the sheer. I I don't uh, like. I don't think you could pull that off nowadays. To be no, quite no. and it was because it wasn't this one of the first films to be shot digitally. 
wasn't this like a so it was this idea of no. the of the energy I can't remember what we shot it on that made it or that certain cameras or something that that meant this was all part of the energy of this new mm-hmm. kit setting setting Danny Boyle free in terms of what might be possible but obviously in, in in British news, this was this was just a story before the long before the film arrived. You know uh-huh. the 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 notion that there was out of shot of that brilliant of of Killian Murphy is a bunch of yep. um, a bunch of runners holding back nightclub people who've just who still haven't made it home yet. They're wondering why they mm-hmm. can't cross the bridge. <laughs> exactly, 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 exactly. You know, um, that's it's amazing. You know, in I, you know, I, I haven't seen Danny Boyle's last movie, but he's kind of like fizzled in the recently. But I liked, I, I loved Train Spotting and I loved the beach. And so, Twenty Eight Days Later was like a good, a good piece in his in his uh, body of work. But, but, good, but, but Alex movie. Garland, Alex Garland wrote the screenplay, and obviously Alex has, and obviously wrote the book. I think he wrote the book, didn't he, for uh, the beach as well. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously he went on to do, he's gone on to do like Dread and uh, and then he wrote and directed uh, Ex Machina, didn't he as well? Uh, yes, I think he did. As a matter of fact, yeah. so there was uh, there was lots of uh, genre credentials being being exploded at the same time there. Well, look, that's your five great British horror films, Sergio. What do you what do you think? Looking back over that conversation, what what would you say are themes that emerge for you when you think of British horror films? Well, like I mentioned in the beginning, you know, I like the, I like how, I like how in the UK, in the UK film industry, they, they take risks. Mm-hmm. They play, because a lot of these films are groundbreaking. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're done for storytelling purposes. Uh, you know, they're, they're, Risk, risky concepts that panned out, and I like that. You know, it's not like that in the U.S. It's definitely not like that in Spain. Um, in fact, if you ask me, like, what horror movie, what Spanish horror movies, that there's been with Filmax, there was a renaissance. There still kind of is in the last maybe decade or two, mm-hmm. but there's not this tradition of horror storytelling that like the UK has. True, true. But I would, in, in sort of in, in a 21st century sense, I mean, I, I mean, Rep obviously wrote, you know, reinvented yes, the, found, the found footage movie when we thought it couldn't be done any better. And then suddenly this exactly. comes along and smashes us in the face and terrifies us. Um, exactly. And I, I mean, I know it wasn't exactly a, a, a massive movie in terms of, commercial sense but I love the film Painless which is mm-hmm. just a magical piece of storytelling for a Spanish horror film where we take a period in the Spanish Civil War and we take the present day and we bring both stories to about the mid to late 60s where they coincide and why they join up and I just thought it was just a brilliant piece of storytelling mm-hmm. there just... is the there is a uh, a lot of it's mostly spearheaded by Filmax. Okay. This the you know Filmax is the the distributor. Uh, I don't know if it if they buy the movies or, but it's mostly spearheaded by that. And yeah, they're, they're, you're right. There's Rick was amazing because it mixed the found footage type of you know found footage and uh, zombie. Mm. 
genres together and it, it worked beautifully. You know, uh, I haven't really seen, I think I saw Rick 2. I have, they're probably in Rick 5 or 6 right now, you know? Yeah, running yeah, yeah. Out of, running out of ideas, I guess. I haven't seen the last ones, but. I mean, but, I but sleep, sleep Tight was another, was another really, I mean, I remember that playing at Fright Fest. Um, mm-hmm. Was a was a great. Uh, I mean, I guess you you, you know board, you could you could argue there um, there it's uh, what do you call it uh, a thriller as much as it is a horror film. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's um, it's been uh, there's there's been some good stuff. And maybe maybe a, a future show might be to do five great Spanish horror films. Um, if you if imagine you feel, that if you feel if you feel that you you would uh, be up for doing that, but let's remind people what's the what film have you got knocking about the festivals at the moment with a, a list of twenty five to come? Uh, Jesus shows you the way to the highway. And remind mm-hmm. us what did Fantasia say about that film? Is the Matrix on acid? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like it's like this Afrofuturist film, you know, uh, that happens. It's in it's in. So check this out. It's mm-hmm. in it's uh, Spanish, Estonian, Latvian. Uh, Romanian UK production. Okay. Imagine manage, managing that. You know, we shot in four countries. Um, it's it's called it's called Daniel Tarese uh, Gagano, who's the protagonist of our previous film called Crumbs. Okay. Which was the sci-fi love story, and you know, the Variety wrote us a great review on it. You know, but where is a is very much a a breaking film. It's unlike anything you've seen. Okay, that's. I'm, really, I'm, that's I'm, a, I'm a salesperson. Eh? I was going to say you've sold me the sizzle. I want to eat the steak now. So exactly. So I uh, hats off to you. Well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having me. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change, restrictions apply. See site for details.